listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. This is the show that talks about identity and access management and making sure you know who has access to what. Let's get started. Welcome to the Identity at the Center podcast. I'm Jeff and that's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey, Jeff. How are you? Oh, not so bad. Yourself? Good, good. You know, the we this is our second podcast recording of the day. We have to do that around the holidays and things like that. But, um, you know, during the last recording session, I had FedEx show up right in the middle of the call, as as expected, right? They, they gave a delivery window. They showed up at the very last moment within the delivery window. And then it was something that had to be signed for. There's only couple of t-shirts and a pair of jeans that I was having delivered, but I had to sign for it. Anyway, uh, that's a, a little bit of the behind the behind the big curtain. Yeah, I always like it when we're sitting here having a conversation with a guest and then I see Jim get up, <laughs> walk away. And it's like, ah, uh, the poor guest must be thinking, I was like, oh, they're not paying attention or like what's going on around here. But uh, yeah, I mean, this is real life. This is the way things work. Of course, if you're getting a delivery, that is exactly when they're going to show up is as soon as we hit the record button. You know, that's when you're going to hear the, the doorbell or the dog bark or, you know, the, the fire engine or the police car drive by. That's just that's just the way it works in the world we live in. So so it's all good. Well, the one that used to always happen was the landscapers would show up. It was like, I think we were recording the podcast in you know, the first 50 episodes or whatever it was on Thursday afternoon, because I knew the, that my crew showed up on Thursday afternoon at like four o'clock and like, you know, the leaf blower would go on just as we hit record. Yeah. Same thing here. My, you know, my, I guess Thursday's landscaping day across the nation. <laughs> so, so we moved to mostly Wednesday, <laughs> Wednesdays to try and counter for that. But that ends up being my, like my, I don't know, my homeowners association. That's when their landscaping does it on Wednesdays. So whatever. I don't think people tuned into the identity of the center podcast to learn about landscaping trends, uh, across the United States other than, Hey, we're real people and we have stuff going on. And sometimes, you know, uh, things, uh, pop up while we're recording that, you know, you don't hear necessarily behind the scenes, but, uh, like I said, sometimes I'll, I'll watch Jim get up, walk away and then come back (laughs) and then we'll carry on the conversation just like nothing ever happened. So, um, so I think with that said, why don't we get into our conversation for today? Because I am staring at a screen here of, of our guest and I'm very excited to have, Stephen Cox on the show. He's a co-founder and chief technology officer at Stravacity. So welcome to the show, Stephen. Thanks a lot, Jeff. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for being here. And, you know, I think uh, one of the things that we like to get into, and we're going to actually have a, a, a conversation that kind of stretches off a couple of different things, you know, probably mostly around customer identity and access management and some things to think about that. But uh, as it's your first time in the show, we've, as in his tradition around here is we like to understand kind of the origin story for people and how they actually got into the identity space, or maybe even when they realized they were an identity and maybe they didn't know it before and just kind of had that dawning. So maybe you can kind of take us, you know, you know, briefly through kind of your path and, and how you ended up on, on this show, I guess. Yeah. You know, so one of your, one of your previous pods, uh, you, 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 you asked a quite that question in a really interesting way. Um, you, you asked like, you know, did you, did you find identity or did identity find you? Right. Um, and I would say that identity definitely found me. Um, you know, I, I, I kind of like to make the joke that I'm, you know, I'm not an identity guy, but I play one on TV. Um, you know, I've, I've been in the security space for a very long time, about 15 years. Uh, my, my first foray into, into security was, 
uh, doing DNS monitoring uh, of the common net infrastructure uh, at VeriSign. Um, that was not too long after, after I was out of college. Uh, I worked for, um, after that, a network monitoring company uh, named NetWitness um, that, was, uh, that was later acquired. Uh, I worked uh, after that for for an incident response company named Mandiant that you're probably familiar with um, before the before the fire acquisition a little bit after um, that was where I met my my fellow co-founder of Stravacity, Keith Graham. Uh, Keith um, later recruited me to uh, an identity company that your a lot of your listeners are probably uh, familiar with named SecureAuth. Uh, and I, I really liked what SecureAuth was doing around threat detection at the at the identity layer. Uh, so I spent a number of years uh, at SecureAuth, um, you know, helping them build uh, their product out. Uh, and and uh, and then Keith and I went off and 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 started Stravastity late in 2019, uh, and 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 the, with the prime focus on on customer identity. So Stravacity is relatively new. And, you know, I think people who are listening have kind of come to realize we don't really do commercials on this show, right? We don't talk about ourselves and certainly try not to make an infomercial people. But I think it's in this case, I want to make a, a slight exception other than to kind of bring the audience up to speed because they may not have heard of Stravacity. It's only been around, like you said, since, you know, 2019, you guys are still growing. Um, and as a relatively new, new player in the SAM space, I guess, you know, what's the 30 second pitch why does the world need yet another CIM product or vendor in the space? Yeah, I appreciate I appreciate the the sentiment there uh, for sure. Um, you know, definitely startup problems is 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 getting your getting your name out there, getting the getting the share of voice, and and um, you know, Stravacity is is the first CIM vendor that was cloud born and and designed from the get go to solve the 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 you know the gamut of of customer identity problems were were, were built for scale. Uh, we're built to solve some of the some of the modern data privacy challenges that uh, that you know that that brands are facing today, and and uh, you know we're 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 you know we're we're building digital transformation for the cloud, really. So I think you partially answered this question, but I was going to say, look, it's not hard to find a blog titled "Customer IEM is Different from Enterprise IEM." In fact, I wrote one uh, when I was with Identropy. Uh, but I want you to explain to the the listeners, the IAM practitioners of the world, what that really means. Why why is customer IAM different from enterprise IAM? Yeah, we've we've also blogged on this topic. Um, it, it's an it's definitely an important one to understand. Um, you know, at a high level, and you know, at a real at a real high level, you know, you're you're basically looking at a different base of users uh, in in CIAM versus you know enterprise IAM. Um, you know, enterprise IAM, uh, uh, traditional IAM has kind of been focused on the workforce, right? Um, customer IAM is, is focused on consumers, of course. Uh, in, in, you know, in workforce IAM, you're, you're provisioned by an HR or an IT person, right? You typically have less say uh, over the means in which you, you access things, uh, you know, in, in workforce IAM. In customer IAM, you're often self-provisioning or registering uh, yourself, right? You have a lot more say on the ways that you access things because you can simply walk away uh, and find another brand to do business with, right? You have you have that choice. Um, so, so here, you know, user experience becomes really important. You know, flexibility becomes really important. You have this. You you may have a widely ranging, you know, demographic, uh, you know, spread in your user base in, in CIAM. Some of them may be less sophisticated. Some of them may not have up to date technology. 
So how do you how do you do multi-factor in, in, in cases where you have, you know, a, a less technical user base? Uh, some of them might have issues in rolling in multi-factor or not want to altogether. So and then, of course, you've got to you've got to think about scale. You know, enterprise IAM uh, is focused on like, you know, sort of thousands to, to maybe hundreds of thousands of users. And CIM can easily get into the tens, you know, tens of millions of users uh, and up. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think, you know, really where I was keying my thinking was really where you started. You know, there, there's such variety. When you're talking about customer IM, who are your customers? Are they consumers? Are you doing an e-commerce site? Uh, are they your members? Are they B2B, B2B partners? Or, you know, are they other businesses? And there's such a different different ways you could go about um managing those user accounts, getting people access, you know, whether or not they are able to maintain that access over time or, you know, when they leave the customer organization, you're offboarding them. Compare that to enterprise IEM. So, you know, <laughs> Jeff, so there are, we don't really talk about what we do, but for those who listen to us every week, you realize that we do uh, consulting on IEM and, develop strategies but you know a lot of times we're working with organizations or what we call enterprise iem is figuring out how to manage who gets access to what from a workforce perspective now we're really not reinventing the wheel every time it's not like well you know in most organizations they're getting a feed from an authoritative source like a human resources system but maybe you guys should do it differently that that's not that's not the way we look at it right it's like you know, you'd have to really be completely different than everyone else in order to to really shake some of those kind of fundamental roots. But when it comes to uh, customer IAM, I find that, you know, that that's not necessarily the case. You have to kind of go into it open minded. Like, how do you do it today? What are you trying to achieve? And and it's a it's a big it's a much more different picture. And I think that in some ways makes it easier uh, or make, makes it provides the justification for why there would be so many CIM op- or opportunities for CIM products to be introduced in the market, but at the same time difficult because since the problem is not one clear solution to kind of develop a, a CIM product that solves all of those problems. And so it creates opportunities, but at the same time makes it a very difficult problem to solve. You know, kind of continuing on with that, you know, we talked about the blog. You guys have a blog. We'll get the the um, the link out there in the show notes to that blog. I saw another blog that you guys wrote called Trade-Offs of Using Open Source CIM. And that's, I found that interesting because, you know, I, again, the CIM problem is something that has so many different solutions. I've run into a lot of clients that either were using open source CIM or seriously considering that. And I wanted to get your perspective on what those trade-offs are. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, just, just a small distinction, you know, when I, when, when we talk to, you know, open source CIM, you know, on that blog where we're, we're not necessarily speaking about like using open source libraries in your software, you know, we all know that's pretty much the, <laughs> the standard way that, uh, that people build software these days. Um, what we're really talking about here is like using a fully baked, you know, CIM open source offering and, and then landing it sort of directly within your product or your, 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 your infrastructure. Right. Um, 
and again, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a joker. So, you know, the, the, the analogy I like to use is that open source CMs, CIM is kind of like a free puppy, you know, um, you know, puppies are cute and awesome and, 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 and you, uh, you know, you, uh, they're, they're awesome. You know, it's great to have. Um, but, uh, you know, when you get, when you take on a puppy, you're taking on much more than, um, than just, you know, the, the, the immediate elation of having a puppy, you have to feed the puppy, you have to walk the puppy, you have to take, uh, you know, it's a multi-year obligation, right. To care, to care for, to care for that puppy. Um, and that's kind of the sort of mentality I speak to when I when I when I talk about taking on an open source CIM offering. You, know, you 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 do get a free product, right? A free product, uh, quote unquote. But you're taking on the on on all the obligation of uh, all the care and feeding around it, right? Operationalizing it, ha- hiring people to maintain it, hosting it somewhere, monitoring it, patching it, addressing security vulnerabilities, right? And that can that can quickly get daunting. Um, a lot of the open source offerings that you see, uh, you know, in this space, um, you know, have premium support packages. So then it's really not even even free anymore. Right. If you if you go that route um, and, and, you know, none of these things are are bad. Uh, there are many organizations that are perfectly fine with that type of arrangement and they have the resources to do that. And, you know, you have you, you ultimately have more fine grained control over it because you actually, you know, own the code and, and, and uh, or are working from the code. Uh, with the CIM platform, you may have a little bit less fine fine grain control, and, and maybe that's okay too. Um, but you should just really kind of think of those you know, think of those trade offs. It's not it's not quite as 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 uh, you know clear or apparent as as you might think you know from from the beginning. Right. It's not really the open source model that I hear you um, have it, an issue with, or really that you're talking about in terms of trade offs. What you're really talking about is the kind of responsibilities that you're taking on yourself. Exactly. Your, your organization is taking on, right. Exactly. To kind of back to my point about um, with CIM and kind of user management being so different. I mean, when you look at CIM products, what they seem to all do well is authentication, right? Authentication for web applications has gotten, you know, baked into standards. There's, not many solutions out there that are saying, Hey, you know, forget about those standards. We got something proprietary that is a heck of a lot better. Right. So then it becomes a matter of, you know, Hey, we implement the standards. We have, um, you know, robust hosting offers, cloud service, et cetera, et cetera. I guess what I'm saying is I think that, you know, there's not a ton of differentiation there. Where the differentiation for my money becomes is around what capabilities do you provide in terms of doing user management, in terms of user registration, in terms of, you know, credential management. Uh, When you get into the B2B scenarios, um, it can get extremely complex. But I find that a lot of my clients, you know, they're, they're looking for a product that can solve most of their problem. They don't want to go and develop their own user management platform. They want to do that. They can just go and do that. They don't need a, a product, but they want a product, right? And they, you know, even more, they want a cloud service, right? And they're even willing to make some trade-offs to get there. Um, but I wanted to kind of throw that out there. Is that kind of what your thoughts are as well? Do you really feel like, um, you know, user management is kind of what is one of the main areas that differentiates CIM? products? 
I think so. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the, the question kind of, kind of comes down to like, well, what, what amount of user management is enough, right? Like it, 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 um, and it really comes down to in, in, the, in the, to me, to my, in, in my opinion, in the CIAM space, it really comes down to user experience, right? Being able to craft, um, you know, it's not just crafting user experiences for the end users, for the, for the end customers, but also for the, for the, for the brands themselves that are using the CIAM product, right? Um, they, they may have different user personas that you need to cater to, right? You have the brand admins, you have the IAM specialists, you have the marketing teams, the, the support folks. Um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a variety of different user personas uh, within an organization that may need access to you know, be able to do certain things uh, within a CIAM platform. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, role-based access control is kind of, kind of one, ways, one way to address this, right? Um, you kind of allow people... Uh, to do different things within your administration console kind of based on their their role or their user persona that you that you configure right so you kind of make it kind of make it easy to get to get to where they want to go um, and do what they want to do um, within within your product so I do think it's important for sure now so now that I kind of made the case that you know user management should be the top priority and I'm not even saying that I think that's one of the main differentiators um, when we talk about customer IAM versus enterprise IAM, I think one of the main differentiators can or differences between the two can be scale. And when I say that, I'm I'm talking about, you know, enterprise scale is, you know, typically up to a hundred thousand users where an internet scale or or where the customer IAM fits in and can be millions, billions of users. But like even if we just take millions, that's exponentially more than than even large enterprises and when you start talking about um companies with or organizations with high seasonality those uh, the volumes can just become ginormous now one of the things i i looked at in researching the strivacity architecture if you will is you guys look to address that using kubernetes you're the architect, right? You were I'm probably the person behind that decision. So maybe even like we, we'd like to start at the most basic level. Maybe what you could do for the audience is kind of explain what Kubernetes does and then why you selected it to help with your scale or how it helps you with scale. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, you mentioned you mentioned that scale is you know a differentiator in, in uh, between CIM and EIAM. I I, um, I definitely agree. I mean, you can get to you can get to sort of massive levels uh, of scale in CIM. Uh, I really I really like your your point about seasonality. Right. The the example I love to give is the is the tax company right that's got extremely bursty traffic at certain times of the year. Uh, you know, when everyone is like, oh my gosh, I'm late on my tax return. I have to do it right now. And, and they're rushing to get those, you know, those tax returns in right before the deadline. So, um, you know, so you have to handle, uh, you know, bursty tra- bursts of traffic, right. Uh, and, and in a way that doesn't, doesn't kill your, your wallet. Um, I'm, I'm sure a lot of your users have hosted stuff on the cloud, so they they kind of know what I'm talking about. But one of the one of the core tenets of of Kubernetes is is a concept called auto scaling, right? So you you look at metrics uh, that are being you know emitted by your services, and you uh, can add additional instances of your services if you know if the metrics reach a certain point. They call that sort of horizontal or vertical auto scaling, um, and you're able to also 
scale that traffic back down uh, in, 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 a, in a situation where, you know, the, the burst traffic uh, kind of, you know, subsides, right? So it makes Kubernetes like really well designed for, for, for this type of product because you can um, handle the seasonality, you know, the crazy bursty traffic, uh, and you can also scale it down and, and, and not kill yourself in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of your, your hosting bills, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense, Stephen. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about how that scaling works. I mean, just, you know, we're not looking to get a PhD in how this works, but just, you know, a little bit more in terms of, all right, so is it that there's some kind of monitor watching over your instances, looking for process or utilization, then spinning up additional server instances? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. You, um, you, you, you have, you know, you have a sort of set of services. Um, you're monitoring their 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 activity, right? Uh, you're monitoring what the CPU is, what the memory is, um, you know, various different metrics. I mean, you can actually, in some cases, design your own metrics if you want. Uh, and when you reach a certain threshold, you you effectively kick off a job that spins up a new instance of that service, right? So, and you can sort of define all kinds of uh, you know parameters around that, right? Maybe you want to double the amount of services, or maybe you just want to add a, one additional service, right? So you 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 have a lot of control over being able to um, to do that. And then the flip side of that is, you know, when it falls below the threshold for some period of time, you you drop one of those services, you know, um, off, and so. You, you do have some, there are some design constraints around that, right? You have to make sure that your your services can be run in parallel, right? That there's not any sort of state shared uh, between them. They have to kind of run and be able to run in, in parallel pretty easily, right? So that one instance of the service can handle a transaction on its own, if that makes sense. Uh, and yeah, and uh, and that's that's kind of the idea of, of, of scaling within something like Kubernetes, yeah. So I got to ask, uh you know, I guess, did you look at Docker as potential or maybe a Docker swarm versus Kubernetes? I guess what was, can you, can you help me understand, you know, why maybe you went with Kubernetes over Docker specifically? Uh, yeah, we did. We did look at Docker swarm. Um, I actually do have some, some personal experience with Docker swarm and, you know, at previous, uh, uh, companies that, that I've, that I've worked with. Um, I think it was really mainly that, um, we had, uh, amongst the early, uh, engineers that, that we had some some real direct knowledge of Kubernetes. Um, so it, it just kind of made sense for us to, to, to go in that path just because of a, you know, a, a, you know, startup bootstrap, get stuff running as, you know, <laughs> type of mentality. Yeah. So it was more of like a, it was more like a team experience thing than, uh, than anything else. Gotcha. I mean, it certainly helps with a ramp up perspective, obviously, if you know the tools you're going to be using. Uh, I'm always curious about the security too. I, you know, I guess when we talk about the scale of, of some of the, um, you know, install bases and authentication bases that you're probably dealing with and, you know, getting into millions and spikes and things like that. I immediately think of things like DDoS um, and other types of attacks that that can trend that way, but also other things like password spraying, uh, you know, man in the middle, social engineering, phishing, like all the stuff that kind of comes along with this. Yeah. How do you approach, um, you know, security from a CIM environment perspective um, and what are some things that people should be thinking about as they look at CIM for their organizations of some of the threats and and how you've you've looked to address some of that? Yeah, you know, I you know, I know it's a it's a it's a bit of a buzzword, but you know, I I, I do often like to talk to um, this in terms of you know defense the defense in depth concept. Uh, you know, there's really no one one way to solve you know all these types of uh, different attacks. Uh, uh, you know, 
you know, you mentioned password spraying, Def- you know, defending against password spraying is, is, you know, a combination of things like doing bot detection and breached password detection, right? You know, are these, uh, are these transactions coming from, from known bot infrastructure? Do you have the ability to, to sort of rate limit, you know, based on various patterns of traffic? You know, are you, uh, you know, can you, you know, are you pivoting on the data, like, you know, things like looking at multiple IPs coming after one set of credentials or a single IP hitting multiple sets of credentials, right? Um, you're, you're kind of looking at these traffic patterns and, and, and trying to make, uh, make decisions off, off of whether you allow those, you know, those, tra- those transactions to go through or not. And, you know, are you, are you protecting your users from sort of the, the, the stolen or weak password situation, right? Um, uh, you know, setting up password policies to, to something meaningful if you are using passwords, uh, doing breach password detection when a user sets or resets their password. You know, if you and if you you, you kind of want to really get sexy, you can think about things like passwordless flows, you know, so there's actually no password at all. Like you're taking it out of the, the problem entirely. Um, and when we're talking about like man in the middle uh, type type attacks, I assume we're you know we're we're specifically talking about man in the middle attacks you know against authentication, um, and that and that has some interesting solutions too. It, it's 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 really around making sure you're taking advantage of of uh, you know a lot of the latest later latest browser security enhancements. Uh, a specific way to defend against this you know in authentication is to use an out of band MFA method. So. Uh, you know, when an action has to be carried out on an external device uh, to complete the transaction, you know, something as simple as like push to accept is is kind of the the real base idea there. And the, and the, the the concept there is that you know the 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 the, the two uh, multi factor methods are not going through the same channel at that point, right? There's you you can't fish uh, you can't fish a a, a one time passcode that's that's on a on a that's on a, that's on a separate channel, right? From, from where you're, from where you're sitting. So you're, you're pushing the, you're pushing the, the, the security um, context of this into, into two separate channels, which is, which is just an inherently good thing to do when you're trying to, trying to design secure systems. And it's interesting that you mentioned the passwordless because I see a lot of kind of interest in that, especially in the enterprise space. Mm-hmm. And we see passwordless to some degree in the consumer side of things. I immediately think of something like Slack, where of course you can use a password to log in, but they also have the magic link process, which is kind of a veiled password, <laughs> passwordless approach. You know, maybe not the smoothest transaction, but it works. And then I think yeah. of some of the other things that you mentioned too around the 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 multiple channels that can be happening for MFA or second factor types of authentication. I think of them Apple. So I, you know, I've got an iPhone, uh, a watch, a, an iPad, a Mac. I'm all, and you know, I have all this, I have Windows too, so don't. Don't hate me for everything. Uh, but <laughs> when I get a multi-factor prompt for Apple, it dings me on every device, even the one I'm using, which never really made sense to me. It's like, oh, okay, I, you know, you, you're sending me a second factor request, but you're sending it to the same device that I'm already using. That seems a little bit um, like that was not well thought out from that kind of deployment standpoint. And I'm just curious you know, if that's, if that's something you've seen as well. Um, and I guess just also, if you can touch on the password side of things, cause I'm wondering how CIM products are looking to address that specific use case for consumers and getting away from the password, which, you know, everyone hates and everyone's been telling us has has been dying now for 10 years. Uh, it's the longest death, uh, <laughs> that I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, in password list and CIM is, is, um, 
is interesting. Uh, you know, we've um, it, it's it's interesting to see that you mentioned you mentioned your 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 Apple you know, your Apple devices. It's interesting that the consumers the, the consumer device companies have really kind of kind of led the way here um, in terms of using biometrics as a as a as a potential second factor, right? So they're actually making it. I, I always like to say they kind of they're kind of making it easy for us as IAM as IAM designers, architects to, to, to leverage a biometric as, as a second factor. Right. Um, so, uh, you can get into a, a passwordless situation where, you know, you do, you do, a an out of, you know, out of band sort of push to accept type of transaction. And the biometric is the, it, the, the device is the first, fa- is the, is the first factor. The, the biometric is the second factor. Right. And, and that's, that's actually pretty cool, right? In, in consumer, because it's, it's easy, right? It, it's, I mean, it's, it, it, you may have some challenges with enrolling it, but like, it's, it's user-friendly, you know, it's like, oh, cool. Like I, I just logged into the, you know, the service I'm trying to get to just by open picking my phone up, authenticating, putting my thumb on the, on the, the reader or my finger on the back of the phone and, and I'm in, right. I don't have to like go type my password in or try to remember it or try to pull it from my password manager. It's like, oh, I'm just in, you know? So that's, that, that's actually really beneficial in the, um, in the, uh, in the consumer space, uh, the enrollment side, like I say, is a little harder, but, uh, it's, uh, the user experience is, is great there. Um, and it's interesting. Yeah. I mean, even you you mentioned like, oh yeah, the, 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 the code goes to all of my devices, even the one I'm, even the one on I'm sitting on, um, that that's not ideal of course. Right. But it is, it is still somewhat of a separate channel because it's not in the same browser uh, session, right. It's out, it's an, it's in a separate browser session. So you, you could argue that it is slightly more secure, but, but, uh, probably not, probably not ideal. Yeah. You mentioned there, Stephen, about the, um, the consumer brands kind of driving a lot of this. And I think they're driving it from the standpoint that they're putting readers into their devices. They're putting, you know, uh, the touch ID or the, mm-hmm. uh, the facial recognition, uh, but to me, it's the the FIDO alliance with the FIDO2 standard WebAuthn that's really making this interoperable and not proprietary. And so to me, that's such a key that, um, you know, we continue to kind of support that and recognize that. Um, at least that we always try to give a nod to it here on the on the podcast. Um, yeah. But I. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to just mention we had a, um, a guest, Roger Grimes, who was on the podcast a couple episodes back. Um, he wrote a book called Hacking MFA, and he kind of dissected the men in the middle attack um, built on the Evil Jinx framework. Uh, if you get an opportunity, I recommend highly going out and looking at that because it really shows you how someone can take an out-of-band MFA and if they set up a man in the middle attack, really you know, uh, take advantage of that. And this is a framework that's still out there on the internet today. And it's really, you know, kind of driven from a, from phishing campaigns to get people to log into a fake website. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, that fake website is relaying those credentials and really ju- they're just trying to steal an access token. Right. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so all of that, I kind of led to the next question that I had for you in terms of kind of looking at your architecture um, and I see you guys are standards based in terms of the authentication, uh, OIDC support, SAML support. Um, I got the sense, and in talking to you, I think you validated this, is that you favor OIDC, which is, I think, the 
the trend I'm seeing almost everywhere. But you favor OIDC over SAML. I'm wondering why that is to avoid kind of the the um, overhead of dealing with browser redirection, or is it something else? Oh, interesting. I, I I'd actually argue that that redirection is is the preferred way to do this. Um, there's there's a, there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, at a, at a if you think at a think of it as a at a really sort of base philosophical level, you're you're not you know when you when you redirect, you're not necessarily sending data between two security domains, right? You're redirecting the browser, the auth is cur- is carried out, and then you're redirecting back to the to the original uh, location that you were at. You know, ver- versus embedding embedding uh, you know sort of login uh, UI. Uh, within a within a portal, you're you're you have to collect the information like username and password and pass it, you know, over to whatever your authentication solution is. So there's there's you know quite simply more attack surface there um, than than you have in in, in the in the redirection um, you know in the redirection method. Um, another reason is that you you know that we would favor redirection is that, you know, UX or customer journey changes can be easily made with configuration rather than requiring code changes within your, in your web app, right? You, you, if you change, if you change flow within a web app, you have to, you, you, you probably are changing code within your web app. If you, if you change flow within a, a, a solution that you can redirect to, you, you may be able to do it with configuration only, right? So it's a very quick change versus something that you have to involve your engineering teams with, um, and then you know, we we favor OIDC. You know, it's 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 just more modern, right? It's based on REST APIs. Uh, uses JSON, you know, as the payloads. Typically, it's more lightweight. Um, you know, SAML is is old. It's it's tw- almost I guess almost twenty years old now. It's it's XML. It's very heavy. Um, you know, OIDC takes things like data privacy very seriously. You know, like consent handling is built into the is built into the protocol. Uh, so we, you know, we, we do kind of have to begrudgingly support SAML for, for, for legacy reasons and will for a long time, but I, I, I wouldn't advise anyone, you know, in this day and age to build a net new app on, on, on top of, of SAML. You know, that's, that's kind of my, my personal two cents there. Yeah. I think we've been saying that SAMLs is, is like the password that's been dying, not quite as long as the password, but, um, yeah, I think it's going to be around for a while. Unfortunately, I think I'm, I'm trying to remember. I think it was Ian Glazer from Salesforce. I think that, mm-hmm. that kind of had talked about that. We had him on the show a while back, and and that was back in we recorded with him in December of last year, 2020. I think the show went live January 2021. And as far as I checked, Samuel has 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 not um, died any further <laughs> since then. Passwords haven't died yet either, but I hope the password dies before Samuel. Yeah, no, Samuel's going to be around for a long time. I'm afraid to say. Well, I mean, the problem is if people aren't, if people keep using it, it's going to stick around, right? So, at what point do you start to rearchitect some of these old apps? Is it yeah. when the apps are end of life? Is it when something new, shinier comes along to replace it? You know, what is it? That's just, I think, it's just the nature of of applications and how they're built. Um, I want to pivot the conversation a little bit because I want to make sure I leave some time to talk about. Um, something that I I personally like to watch and enjoy, um, and it and it relates a little bit to. Uh, customer I am in a way that I'd like to understand uh, who is your favorite Twitch streamer and why is it you? Oh, well, yeah. Why is it me? Um, 
I mean, I, I, I follow a lot of, uh, I follow a lot of, uh, Overwatch, uh, Overwatch streamers. I mean, it's kind of a, kind of my favorite PC game. Um, I, I follow the Overwatch league, uh, and, and there's, uh, there's quite a few like, you know, professional players that stream often on Twitch. So there's a, I, I follow a bunch of them. That's, uh, that's really my, my, uh, probably the most of the time that I spend on Twitch is doing that. Yeah. I, I definitely, uh, I, I've, I've done a little bit of streaming here and there on Twitch myself. Definitely not anything that I do with any sort of regularity. And it's usually the same two games. It's either World of Warcraft or League of Legends. <laughs> Those are the only two games that I consistently will, will play, uh, despite the toxicity, I think, of sometimes of either of those folks. But uh, Jim, I think, wasn't your son looking at being a streamer at some point? Yeah, both my boys gave it a shot for a little bit, and they had some followers and people made donations to them um which seemed to re- really weird to me i was like you know almost like listening to my podcast giving you money well yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when's the last time you got a donation for this jeff oh we don't ask for them that's fine yeah I mean, we're not asking for them now but i just i thought it was weird and uh, uh, i don't know i don't hey, look there's just some some things i don't get and that's <laughs> one of them Get off of Jim's lawn, I think is what he's trying to say. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I kind of think you're right. I do watch. I, I, I like the idea of Twitch and, and what it brings. I think it, it adds a social aspect to gaming that used to be there with couch co-op that doesn't necessarily exist anymore. You still have multiplayer online games. And obviously, you know, with, I, I have a long history with World of Warcraft. I used to be at a raiding guild. So I have, you know, I was definitely nerded out on that for a long time. Definitely much more casual now. But um when I see services like that, I also look at it as like, oh, that looks like an interesting game. Rather than me going and spending $60, $70 on the game, I'm going to go watch someone play it and see if it makes sense, right? It's almost yeah. like it's almost like a demo without any fee for it. And sometimes these streamers are, are can be relatively interesting and actually hold a conversation. And it's not just, you know, I think probably maybe what some people might be expecting if they're not familiar with it is just like you're watching someone else play a game. Why is that interesting? And I guess, Stephen, to turn it back to you, is like, okay, so... I'm watching someone play a game. Why is that interesting, Stephen? <laughs> so, so when when I when I dis, when I discuss this with the you know with the get off my lawn crew, um, I I uh, I kind of I kind of say, well, do you do you watch sports on on TV? Do you watch football on TV? Well, wh- wh- why are you watching the football player on TV rather than playing football yourself? Right? It, it's it's a, it's a similar analogy. I mean, that's that that's the that's what. The, that's what gamers want to do is they want to, they want to watch other gamers play, you know, and it's, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of different reasons you mentioned is a, a good, a good, a good reason definitely is like, Oh, I'm, I'm interested in buying this game. I want to go check it out. Um, see, see what people are doing with it. See if it kind of fits what I like to do. Um, another reason is, uh, people use it to get better. Right. So like I watch overwatch streamers because I learn all the horrible mistakes that I make when I play. Right. And I, and I see what the, what the professionals are doing when they, when they play and I go, Oh, I can, I can, I can incorporate that into my game. Right. You know, this is sort of kind of a, it's kind of a learning experience, uh, as well. Right. So, yeah, I think another thing that I saw, so this wasn't Twitch, it was YouTube. I, I believe, um, my, kids kind of made their entry into video games with minecraft and the people who do minecraft videos first off it's i don't know it's not it's not a very high fast-paced game so the folks who would stream their videos were like entertaining right they were they were trying to make like a fun story and they made it sound like they're having so much fun playing the game and i think that was 
really what drew the kids into it in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a personal connection thing too there too. Cause I mean, you can, you can, you can talk to the gamers and, 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 on Twitch and, and, and if you, ha- if you really like a, you know, a streamer, if you really like a professional gamer and like, they might actually reply to you, right? Like they might actually like call you out. And that's, I mean, that's pretty cool, especially for, I think, especially for younger folks, they're like, wow, you know, that my favorite streamer <laughs> just actually talked to me, you know, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. We get that all the time with the podcast, you know, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. You know, autograph <laughs> sessions, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we get it totally. Um, all right. So, you know, at the end of the day, Here's I'm going to tie it back to identity and Twitch is especially when you mentioned, you know, getting better and watch how the pros do it on Overwatch, for example. It's all about owning noobs, right? Making sure that you're a step ahead of the game, whether it's on Overwatch or people who are trying to break your CIM system, whatever it is, is you want to make sure that you own the noobs. Would that be fair, Steven? I would say I would say the, the analogy is if I want to own the noobs, is I want to I want to own the the script kitties that are that are trying to attack your 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 portal, right? Yeah. Those mm-hmm. are the noobs in in, in my uh, in my view. Yeah. I, I kind of I, you know we had this conversation that's with that uh, same guest, Roger, talking about hacking MFA. It was like even if you had the worst MFA, that's going to block a bunch of the script kitties because, you know, it takes kind of next level versus just going to the dark web, downloading a password file and trying all the passwords. Exactly. A wet Kleenex is still better than no Kleenex, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um Steven, you've been very generous with your time, but before we go, I, I'd like to just kind of give it an opportunity for each of you to kind of uh, I guess, leave any pearls of wisdom, advice for folks who are looking at CIM as part of their their strategy that they're looking to address. What are some things that that you hope people took away from this conversation, Stephen? I think I, I think you I think you you started the conversation in exactly the right way. It's kind of un, it's kind of understanding the, the 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 nature of the difference between traditional IAM and and, and customer identity, and and making sure that you're you're kind of thinking through that decision process of what you're going to do when you go to, you know, to, to, to undertake your first, you know, CIM project and understanding that decision process, understanding the trade-offs, um, understanding those differences that I, you know, that we, that we talk through and, and, and making sure that you're, you're, you're making the right, you know, purchase decision or build decision or buy decision. Right. I think that's really the, the the words of wisdom I would want to leave with. Jim, how about yourself? I think my pearl of wisdom kind of ties back to the episode we did with Martin Kupinger. Um, you know, the analyst firms put out analysis of a space like CIAM and include the major vendors, and some vendors don't even make it into that field. Um, doesn't mean if they're not in that in that analyst report that they don't have merit. And just because they are on that analyst report, maybe they're the the furthest up to the right, doesn't mean they're right for you. And I think, you know, just in having done the amount of research that I've done with Stribacity, it's it there's a lot there that interests me. And I think that, you know, I just want to take the opportunity to say, don't kind of write vendors off just because they don't fit into the analyst report where you expect them to. You know, the, at the, I think what it's, it's worth doing is like including some vendors who you wouldn't normally expect to win 
throw them into your RFP or your POC process. Because the other thing that happens is there are vendors who, you know, are middle of the pack or less. And three years later, they're the far upper right. There's others who are the far upper right who get acquired and then they just drop off the page within, you know, three to five years. So keep those things in mind. Um, that's kind of my, my pearl wisdom is what I'm sitting here thinking about. Yeah, I think we've mentioned this before, you know, and all supports are great. They should be a data point to take as part of a decision, but they should not be the decision. And unfortunately, I still see a lot of companies out there that, you know, they only look at Gartner. And if it's not on Gartner, we don't care. They're missing out on a lot of stuff <laughs> and they're probably, you know, paying a lot of money for things they don't need, you know, those sorts of things. So my recommendation would be, you know, if this is if you're looking to solve a particular solution or a specific area, I should say, is talk with people who have already solved it. Talk with people in the space. Get out there and talk with other people in the IEM world. Uh, groups like ID Pro, which have a fantastic Slack channel where you can ask questions like this. You know, ask questions out there because, you know, the, you don't want to be, you have, you know, you want to have more data points to have a better decision and what's right for your organization versus, um, you know, just taking uh, the word of Gartner or, or Kumir Cole or Forrest or any other, you know, any of these kind of analyst firms. So, um, all right. So I think that's enough soapbox, at least, at least for me on that topic. <laughs> um, we'll go ahead and call it for this week. Uh, in the show notes, we'll have a link for folks who want to connect with Steven on LinkedIn. Uh, people can also learn more about Stravacity at str. I-V-A-C-I-T-Y.com, Stravacity. Uh, like I said, show notes, a uh, uh, link will be in the show notes. And uh, we'll also have a couple links to some of the uh, blog articles that we mentioned as part of the conversation here around differences between enterprise IAM, customer IAM, trade-offs for, uh, you know, versus open source, things like that. So it'll be a wealth of knowledge that people can check out there. Um, all right. So I think we'll call it. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for your time. Jim, thank you so much for your time. And we'll talk with everyone in the next one. Thanks for listening to the Identity at the Center podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and visit us on the web at identityatthecenter.com.